Uh, would you go to the book of Mark chapter 10 with us? They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus teaching, leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. Well, those who follow were afraid. They are heading to Jerusalem, okay? This is the moment. Jesus has predicted twice now, twice now, that he's going to die. And so he pulls the disciples aside again and says that it's going to happen. Verse 33, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, extremely specific, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise. Now, this next question that these disciples are asking, James and John, I would like to suggest to you, they're asking the right question if they don't understand why Jesus is going to die. Because in the minute, he's going to say, this is why I'm dying. That'll be the first time he says why. But if he is going to die, right, open up a can like Iron Man, he's got superpowers. He's already raised people from the dead, right? Lazarus, there was a young man, he's casting out demons, he's healing people. These guys, at this point, I believe, that's why it says they were astonished, they're ready to go. Because they're literally following Iron Man into battle. This is going to turn out awesome. That even if he gets dead, he won't be dead, right? Now that said, why this is important for us today is that if you believe that Jesus died and resurrected, that's awesome, right? Believe it, it'll change your life, change your soul, save your life. But if you could understand why he did it, it'll change everything about life this side of, of heaven for you. So they, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Uh, Matthew tells us that mom was with him. History's first helicopter mom. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Kids, have you ever asked your mom that? I guess most of the kids are in uh, middle school deeper right now. That's a question of like, whatever I say, I just want you to say yes. And so they're trying to trap Jesus like he doesn't know. So verse uh, 36, what is it you want me to do, Jesus asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and uh, the other at your left in glory. Again, if you're following a superhero and not a savior, this is a logical question. I want to be front in line charging on the Avengers movie. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Enthusiastically, you're right. Yes, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Verse 41, and when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with James and John, probably more because they just didn't have the courage to ask, right? They wanted it, but James and John, you know, they asked. And Jesus called them all together. We got to have a meeting and says, you know, those who are regarded as rulers and Gentiles lorded over them. You know what it is like in the government. You know what these people are like, that they're going to exercise authority, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Very famous verses here. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. If you want to be great, you must become a servant. If you want to be first, you must become a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is God's word. Let's 
pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your word today to be the lamp and the light that you promised us that it could be. Lord, we're reading about a cup, we're reading about becoming servants, and this is all great, but what does it mean for us today? And in these few minutes that we have, I pray that those words will become alive to us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Understanding that Jesus died, believing that he died, that he resurrected, most Christians in America would say that is what they believe. We believe that. James and John, I think, believe it now. They're not pushing back anymore that, you know, no more Satan get behind me. Don, it's like, we get it now. Now it's not about Satan get behind me. Now it's about, okay, so who's going to be first in line here? Who's going to be around the throne with Jesus? And I would like to suggest to you that they are praying this prayer not because they believe that he died, but because they didn't know why. This is the first time in Mark 10 where he is going to tell them why he's going to die. And if you understand why he died, it changes everything. So that's the flow that we're going to talk about today. The first one that he died, like that's what happened. You know the story, you've seen the Easter place, the passion of the Christ, that in just these next few days, Jesus is going to find himself in a garden sweating great drops of blood. Like the kind of stress that makes capillaries burst. Like I've been under some stress in my life, but not that level. Like he is stressing out, freaking out. He's going to pray, God, is there any other way? He's literally, Peter, he's begging for his life. God, if there's any other way. And by the time he is flogged and and crucified, we know the story of the brutality of his death On the cross, he's writhing and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Now think with me. Jesus was not the first martyr, right? John the Baptist, nor would he be the last martyr. Peter was going to, church history teaches us, asked to be crucified upside down. He didn't feel worthy. Didn't feel worthy. James, who was, right, can the first be last, right? Last be first. James was actually going to be first. He's going to be the first one martyred died a death. Fox's Book of Martyrs, I don't know if you've read it before. It talks of martyrs being burned at the stake and singing hymns as they're dying. Okay? Now think with me. That's not how Jesus died. Jesus died writhing. He died begging for his life. He died, God, if there's any other way. He died, God, why have you forsaken me? Many other martyrs have died more nobly and better than Jesus did. Why is that? I think it's not the fact that he died, but the why behind he died. His crying out wasn't, couldn't have been just because he was going to be tortured. Many people have been tortured. This was different, something more profound. And the why behind the what will change everything about the way I pray, about the way I live, about the way I serve, if I can understand, take inside of me the why that he died. Now, by the way, if I were to say, why did he die for your sin? Some of you would say, God's atonement, right? It's atonement. That's a word that we use in Christian circles. Some of you might say, well, he died for my sins, I saw it on a chick track in 1978. Do you guys know tri- chick, chick tracks? Old people do. We, all the old people, we know it. Um, 
you kids, they used to make these very scary comic book Jesus things. And, and most times they would put them in a toilet, this is a true story, in toilet paper rolls in truck stops or whatever. And so you're unrolling the toilet paper and this giant scary comic book that would try to scare you into heaven would. Do you, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, okay. Some of it. I think Mo still has a collection of those. <laughs> Scaring you into heaven. <laughs> Look, Jesus' death wasn't just about a chick comic book, okay? There was something a why behind the what about atonement that was important. That's what those comic books were trying to tell us, that there was a reason behind it. Maybe not effectively, but that was what they were driving for. Now, here's what, what might surprise you. When I say atonement, we say, I mean, Tracy, I don't know if you know this, this is all inf new information to me, so I'm sharing a little bit of stuff that I've learned even just this week. And if you want to go home and Google William Lane Craig, I think I'm getting, he's got like three first names. So if that's not, just re rearrange the names. Somehow in there, William, that dude right there, he did the work on this that I think is just brilliant and I think it's worth it. Because if you say Jesus died for your sins, you know, we'll post that in the private Facebook group so you can find it. That's true. But if I were to ask you why, you'd be surprised that different corners and different sections of Christianity might have a different answer for this. And I want to start with the fact that there are those that I believe are in heresy who would say that Jesus just died to show himself as love. And that was it and no other reason. And without stepping on any toes, if you're reading any of Richard Rohr's work, that is what Richard Rohr is teaching. He's teaching that Jesus didn't come to save us from our sins. He didn't come to change right, his mind about us. It was to change our mind about him. Some of this stuff sounds good on paper. You just can't find it in the Bible. But in the Bible, there are these four, and I'm going to read four of these right now that you could actually look to the Scripture and find a very biblical case for it. One, the Christus Victor. All right, That's Latin, and it just simply means that Jesus came and opened up a can and defeated Satan. He defeated sin and death in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. He gives victory over sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another theory that's called the moral influence. It's based on Hebrews 1, 3. It says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. In other words, Jesus becoming a man represented to us perfectly who God is, and because of his passion, his death, his resurrection, that we would be compelled to love God as well. And then there is the satisfaction. It's Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That there is a debt that you owe that you can't pay. You can't possibly, you don't even have the right currency, but Jesus, a sinless man, came, did this, and paid your debt for you. And then there's, this is especially true in Reformed circles, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitution is a little different. First uh, John 2, verse 2, that he is the atoning sacrifice. Uh, some words would say the propitiation of your sins, that he's not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. And this theory just simply means that, look, I'm in sin, and I'm deserving of the wrath of God. And the only way for me to not receive that would be that a sinless, spotless sacrifice would be given on behalf of me that would receive the wrath from me so that I don't have to. Okay, that's four of them from a biblical perspective. Which one is right? 
The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. They're all right. And where you go wrong is when you say, I don't want a full-orbed view of the atonement. Instead, I want just my little version of it. Because Christ the victor without Christ the atoner is an inadequate view of what Jesus has done. On the other hand, Christ the atoner, right? The I am a wretched worm and a snake and I must be without the victory over sin is also inadequate. But when you combine these all together, what you get is the word atonement, which means at one -ment. The etymology of that word simply means at one -ment. I am at one with God. I have been separated from him, and now I am at one with him. Now look, I know this is a deep dive in a doctrine on a Sunday morning, but I promise it's about to pay off. Because understanding this, understanding that all of these together is the only possible way because the wrath of God and the love of God are not incompatible. They're inseparable. My daughter is an artist and she's extraordinarily talented. And Lauren, if I walked in and, and Ethan has destroyed your brother, your greatest artwork that you're using for your college, like what would, how would you feel about that? Displeased. She'd be furious because what she's created has been destroyed. Every day of our lives, you and I wake up in a fallen world, destroying each other and destroying the world around us with ourselves, with our idols, with our sin. Whenever I hear somebody that has a problem with the wrath of God, I think it's not that they don't understand God, this is they don't understand man. They don't understand the lengths to which mankind has gone to harm each other, to marginalize each other. And if you're so sure that God's wrath isn't true, what do you do with Boko Haram in North Africa? What do you do with ISIS? What do you do with sex traffickers? With, uh, the God's wrath is important because it's God's justice. And at the same time, God's justice also in carried out on Christ means that God doesn't have to wink and nod at your sin. Instead, he can deal with it with wrath and that Jesus, in the fact that he took it for us, now we understand the depths of Christ's love which draws us to God. I say all that because when I get that, and I want you to know, on a scale of one to 10, I probably about a 1.5 get this. I'm, I'm more than I did, but not as much as I'd like to, because I think maybe this is what we'll spend an eternity understanding. We're just scratching the surface of understanding the depths that God went to to get to us. And here's what he did for us. Jesus to the disciples said, hey, we want to be on your right and your left-hand side. And he says, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? And they're like, of course we can. We're with Iron Man, absolutely. And he says something interesting when he says to them, okay, you can. You can drink from my cup. You can drink from my baptism. So is Jesus wrong? Or is he talking about two different cups? In the verse right before, right after, when he says, he who wants to be great must become a servant, and he who wants to be first must become slave of all. Paul, this is fascinating to me. He says two different words there. 
He says, if you want to be great, you must become a servant. And he uses the word diakonos. Okay, this is a little Greek lesson. Maybe it's a little early for this. Come back to the podcast later. Diakonos is a servant. He says, if you want to be great, that's what you've got to be. But whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, doulos. Now, in doulos in the scripture, the only way that that is appropriately used, it's translated differently, but the only use in the Greek language was for a slave, for someone who was not paid for, who had given up all of their rights, who was at what we would call a slave. Doulos, that's what that was used for. Diakonos, on the other hand, was used as a word that could mean server, servant. And so it's where we get our word deacon from. Uh, To put it maybe in a more modern parlance, if I were to say server, you would think, okay, yeah, restaurant, hotel, like a different context of where a server could be used. But if I use the word car hop, shout out Lauren, second time in a row. Is a car hop a server? Yes, but it's a very specific kind. I say car hop, you immediately think Sonic, especially if you live in the South. But I say server, you could think many things. Jesus saying, do those, they thought slave immediately. There was no other option for that. And if you look at the work that John MacArthur's done on that, it's fascinating. And by the way, I was talking with Edie this week, who is a doula. And what does a doula do? A doula comes in alongside and serves and helps somebody go through their suffering and their pain on the way to something beautiful. Doula, the word we get our word doula from is the word doulos in the Greek. Beautiful picture of what Christ is doing. So now, let me see if you can smell what I'm stepping in. Jesus said this cup, the cup of the doulos, the cup of of the slave of all. Who in the kingdom of God is going to be first? It's not a trick question. It's Jesus. Who's going to be first is Jesus. He is the doulos because he became the slave of all. His life wasn't, right? He didn't come and pay a ransom. He didn't come write a check to get your butt out of debt. He came to be the ransom, to be the sacrifice. I'm offering my life as the sacrifice. That's what he came to do. And because he drank from the cup of wrath, Jeremiah tells us there's a cup of God's wrath. Revelation 14 talks about the wrath of God's cup being poured out onto mankind. Jesus in Matthew 26 would say, if there's any way this cup can be passed from me. That's the cup that Jesus drank from. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that the cup that the disciples that you and I drink from is not the cup of wrath. That's the cup that Jesus drank from. The doulos cup. And he drank from that. He says, you will drink from my cup. And you know when he said that? On the last night of his life before he was getting ready to be crucified, he took up a cup and he said, this is the blood of my covenant shed for you drink from it. You will drink from my cup. You will be baptized in my baptism. Y'all, this is pretty good stuff. I can't take credit for it. This is just Jesus. But you're going to drink from a cup of grace because he drank from a cup of wrath. He took that so I don't have to. And now I can take this cup and be reminded of the price that he paid for me. Now to take that backwards, if I understand why he died, it changes everything about the way that I live. It changes the way that I pray. 
Because if I understand that he was the atoning sacrifice for my sins, that he would do that for me, that he is so good that my prayers of the Jesus prayer that they just prayed, give us whatever we want, Jesus, just say yes and then I'll ask. What was their prayer, by the way? Sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom. In Matthew 20, Salome, the mother, is there. And she says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can my sons be on your right and your left hand side? That's the prayer. And look, that's every prayer for a parent. I want what's best for my kids. I want them to do well. Christian, we want her to do well. We're praying for her. We want to control the narrative. I want to do well in the definition of my definition of well, God. I want mine. It was just a few days, maybe more than a week later, that Salome would be sitting on the foot of the cross. A thief on the left hand, right, I don't remember which, <laughs> said, Jesus, will you remember me on the day that you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Her heart must have sunk. On the day that you come into my, your kingdom, can my sons be on your right and on your left-hand side? And on the right and the left-hand side of Jesus, on the day that he came into his kingdom, were two thieves being crucified. Had Jesus have answered her prayer the way that she wanted it prayed, that would have been James and John. Brutally murdered in front of their mother. We can trust that our God is good. We pray differently. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We pray that, Lord, if this is your will, because by the way, James and John would ultimately be martyred, but God had more to do for them. First will be last, the last will be first. James was the first. He was the first martyr from the church, of the, the, the disciples, the first one. John was last. He was the last one to be alive, and he wrote a book called Revelation. Both were in God's will, and both were just praying from this. These guys here that wanted the jockey for the left and the right-hand side of God, once they knew why, to pay a ransom, to restore you to relationship with him, then the only proper response to that is to follow Jesus wherever he leads you to go, wherever he wants. It causes me to serve differently. To serve, to say that, what does he say? If you want to be great, you're going to have to become a diakonos, a servant of all, servant around. That, you know, that doesn't sound like much fun. But to become a servant, empowered by what Jesus has done here on the cross, when you think of it the way that Jesus has set it up for us, it makes it so much more beautiful. Because now... I'm going to read something to you. Does anybody know what a drink offering is in the Old Testament? Okay, I'm going to give you real quick. A drink offering in the Old Testament. Follow me on this. The priest would come to the altar with a glass of wine. And on the glass of wine, they would pour it out onto the altar. And it was a symbol of the wine for God, which spoke of celebration. Your sins had been forgiven. Celebrate. The wine was for God. Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, said this, My life is already being poured out as a drink offering on the altar of 
their sacrifice. There's a cup of wrath that I don't want anything to do with. There's a cup of grace that he's allowing me and inviting me to drink from. And in doing so, he turns my life into a cup of praise. Because now my life, Jesus poured out his blood so I can pour out my life. And when I understand the why, the atonement of this, that when I pour it out and the people that I'm pouring my life out on are not thankful, where they're spiteful, where they're angry, where it's not turning out like I liked it, it's okay because I wasn't giving it for them. I was pouring it on them, but it was for him. Your life being filled with grace from the cup of grace empowers you to serve Jesus in a way that now I can literally pour out my life to the grateful and the ungrateful, to the thankful and to the unthankful. It matters not because it wasn't for them. It was for him. And in the last day, the marriage supper of the lamb, Jesus' return, will all be gathered around a table. Maybe there will be car hops, Lauren. I don't know. I bet they'll tip. (laughs) But on that day, just as Paul's life was being poured out as a drink offering on the altar for the sacrifice, it's for God. It's it's for God, Deidre, the times that you poured out for your children. I mean, I'm sure they've all written you lovely thank you notes and poetry, thanking you for how much you've sacrificed for them, right? No, okay, well, be that as it may. Caitlin, you got homework. Um, Now look, especially if you're a parent of a little, you know this, when's the last time they said thank you for wiping my butt? Right? It's part of raising kids. But when I'm pouring my sacrifice out on that altar, but it's for him, here's the picture that I get from that, that your life now becomes the cup, Peter Shindy. And your cup at that day, your life being held up by God, the drink for God, now not just in theory but in reality, Shindy's life held up as a cup full of grace, full of mercy and forgiveness and righteousness, held up by the Father God as a toast to Jesus for the work that he has done. Gang, you could drink from the cup of wrath and good luck with that. This whole book has been about that. You want to work your way into heaven? Start cutting your hands off, gouging your eyes out. Start living by works. Drink the cup of wrath if that's your way in. But the fact of the matter is, is, is it won't be good enough and you can't make it that way. But Jesus paid a way that was so much greater, so much better, so much easier because he drank the cup of wrath. I can drink the cup of grace. And because the cup of grace, my life becomes a cup of praise. And that is a beautiful thing. From the moment you breathe your first to the moment you breathe your last breath, your life <laughs> poured out on the sacrifice of each other Because if you think about it, if you're Jesus and you don't have any needs, how do you, how do you, you you owe me everything. I've saved your life eternally. You owe him everything. But he doesn't need anything. So he says, all right, we'll fix that. When you serve the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. 
when you love this, I'm going to count it. I didn't need that. I'm, I'm fine now, but, they, but I'll, you, what did he say to John on the cross? Would you take care of my mother? Because I'm not here to do it. You do it for me. Who are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters, these little brothers of mine? Our opportunities are endless of opportunities to love the least of these brothers of mine. And on that day, he will say, when did we do this? When did we see that? He said, when you've done it for the least of these, you've done it unto me. That's a beautiful act of service. That's why Titus 2 says that the love of Christ compels us, makes us eager to do good things. We're going to worship a little while here because I want the, the communion to be available for us today with this in mind. We keep the cup available every week. We keep the table available every week. Not because I want this to be a rote exercise or tradition, but the reminder that we needed to be. Because I can drink from this cup today. This is my blood of the covenant for you.